0: On RN Now, I'm very pleased to welcome one of the world's leading thinkers on the role of the contemporary state and the contemporary state of innovation. Mariana Mazzucato is a professor at University College London and founding director of its Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. She's also the author of highly acclaimed and widely read titles like The Entrepreneurial State, Debunking Public versus Private Sector Myths in 2013, and earlier this year, Mission Economy, A Moonshot Guide to Changing Capitalism. Among the many, many impressive appointments that Mariana has, she's also the chair of the WHO Council on the Economics of Health for All, which I've described affectionately as kind of like the Jedi Council for Progressive Economics. And this week, Professor Mazzucato gave the prestigious Penrose Lectures in London, where she was introduced as one of the most influential economists of our time. Mariana Mazzucato, welcome to Sunday Extra.
1: Thank you very much. Happy to be here.
0: Mariana, in your first Penrose lecture, you listed some of the countries that your institute found were able to govern better through the COVID-19 crisis. And I must admit that if I had to try and guess that list, I reckon I would have got none out of four. <laughs> uh, it was an interesting list, though. Uh, Vietnam. Kerala, Rwanda and Togo. I wonder if you could tell us what was distinctive about those places and perhaps sort of weave that into your broader thinking about what qualities uh, that you know a modern and dynamic state requires.
1: Sure. I mean, I guess the reason I mentioned those countries was also precisely as you say cuz it's not exactly expected that you would find countries that would be considered developing uh, still in their trajectory mm. as being on the frontier. And the reason they are on the frontier of their reaction and did much better than many countries, both in the developing world and the developed world, is they actually made investments within their own public administrations, because to govern, whether it's a health crisis or a climate crisis, it's not about just, you know, waking up and praying that things go well. It requires governance. It requires uh, knowledge about how to do outcomes-oriented procurement policy, how to build trust, which of course is so important. If you, we just think about what happened globally with the vaccine, where there was a lot of distrust, um, even of the scientific advice around it, it requires um, knowing how to govern the infodemic side of the crisis. So how to govern data and digital platforms. And these were countries that on the back of previous crises and viruses like the Nipah uh, virus actually did make those investments. Um, now, in no way did they do you know, perfectly as no one did. But there's many countries that were sort of on the opposite um, of the spectrum, precisely because they had basically outsourced government capacity, whether it's to intermediary organizations like we have in the UK, Circo and G4S, which you might remember were outsourced to do the security for the London Olympics and then failed miserably. So the military (laughs) had to come in. Or consulting companies, which Australia also has been overly, I think, using in the past decades. uh, We used in the UK Deloitte to do test and trace. They failed miserably. That is not a niche core competence of Deloitte. So it's not surprising, actually, that they didn't do well. What is surprising is that government wouldn't have used its own resources uh, to govern uh, the test and trace. And of course, we did do very well in the UK around the vaccine rollout because we used the National Health Service and the community-based GP practices Um, And so we need more investment in our local, regional and national structures in order to work well in partnership with the private sector. But the problem is that when we stop investing in those resources, it's, it's not surprising that then we have real difficulties in governing the challenges we have.
0: Many people, I'm sure, would be attracted to the idea of investing in a timely way in state capacities, particularly to deal with crises like the the pandemic. You also used an unexpected phrase when you talked about the idea of a, quote, Sexy, edgy, crazy bureaucracy. Uh, Now, not everyone's going to like all three of those adjectives anywhere, but even fewer, I suspect, (laughs) would associate them with the public sector. In what circumstances and to what extent is being sexy, edgy, and crazy a desirable quality (laughs) for state apparatus?
1: Well, yeah, I probably exaggerated. There (laughs) were some of the adjectives I was getting excited by my own lecture. Um, So, I just wrote a book called Mission Economy A Moonshot Guide to Changing Capitalism, where I actually look at Uh, The bureaucracy that was within the National Space Agency, NASA, when it set out to uh, try to get a man to the moon and back, that was the mission, and back Mm. in a short amount of time. And they realized very early on that they weren't fit for purpose. One of the astronauts who died in the Apollo 1 fire, there was three astronauts, remember, who died in the simulation of the lunar Uh, module flight, Um, he yelled before, you know, just a couple hours before dying, how are we going to get to the moon if we can't even talk between two or three buildings? They couldn't hear what was being said by Mission Control Room. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem, basically, that all bureaucracies have. Uh, We have departmental silos, we have departments within our governments that don't talk to each other, that aren't agile, they're not flexible, there isn't horizontal communication. Um, So NASA changed its bureaucracy. There's nothing inevitable in having an inertial, inflexible, rigid, top-down, slow bureaucracy. That's a choice we make. Just like I was saying before, a choice we make to not invest in our public administrations. The point I was trying to make was, you know, in order to be purpose-oriented, the kind of moonshots that we should have around our societal goals, whether they be around the welfare state, public education, public transport, public health... Reducing the digital divide to zero, having carbon neutral regions. These are really, really hard tasks. And our bureaucracies need to be fit for purpose so we can, you know, go to the moon and back in these areas. And if we don't invest in our public administrations, but also if our bureaucracies are almost by design unfit. Because we think that at best the government can fix market failures. So just patching things up as opposed to having an all of government approach to work. You know, just think of the climate crisis. It's not just about renewable energy. It's how we move, what we eat. So sustainable mobility itself would require, you know, Ministry of Transport, the Treasury, the industry uh, department to work together alongside those departments interested in new materials. How do we build differently? You know, that requires an all-of-government approach. So it requires exactly what Gus Grissom was yelling NASA to do, which was communicate between your buildings. And you know, that's the basic point though, there is that the kind of bureaucracies we have are outcomes of decision making. And we need different decisions to be made in order to drive more um, creative bureaucracies that can think out of the box. And by the way, businesses, because we recognize that business creates value, uh, the private sector creates value, of course they do, but we've dismissed the role of the public sector to create value. We think it's just there to enable, facilitate, uh, de-risk, fix markets along the way. The private sector, by seeing itself as a value creator, you know, asks pretty difficult questions around decision making, around organizational behavior. Just think of the Masters in Business Administration. Australia has some great MBA programs as well. The kind of courses that managers take when they're trained to manage value creating company, strategic management, decision sciences, organizational behavior. These are by definition putting action, agency, strategic decision making at the center of how we think of that organization, whereas the civil service is trained literally just to patch things up and it doesn't actually also build the confidence of seeing themselves as part of the wealth creation machine. It's, it's a redistribution machine, a regulation machine, a fixing machine, and that determines the kind of skills we think we need in those bureaucracies.
0: So clearly a part of the change that you say is required is changing the sense of what the mission of the public sector is. It strikes me also though that uh, while a place like NASA with an inspiring mission like getting to the moon and back is one example of transformational change, the process for actually Turning an organization into one that has dynamic capabilities is a huge challenge. Who else has done it well? And is there a kit bag of tools that are needed to do this?
1: So I don't think any one country is doing anything perfectly, but there are very interesting organizations in different countries Mm. that I think kind of provide the seed of change. And then the question is, what if that seed actually was scaled up and it becomes the way we do capitalism? (laughs) You know, so uh outcomes oriented procurement which i mentioned before the u.s government has often done it but just in times of war the reason we have the defense production procurement act is that after the korean war they realized they needed to change that government instrument and the u.s government does it very well but only in times of war or for the military industrial complex Uh, they have found themselves now needing to do it to produce baby formula which due to the supply chain problem that we have globally there's not enough baby formula in the US, but we only use it in times of crisis. It's not the normal way that we think of of government tools, and yet procurement, which is government as purchaser, not just government as investor, is a huge part of every country's budget. In the UK, where I live, our entire innovation budget um, is £10 billion. uh, Just the procurement budget of the Ministry of Transport is £40 Um, and, and you go across, you know, the board there, think of the procurement budget for the Department of Health, of energy, of defense, of transport. You could use it to drive green innovation across all those different areas if we actually thought in that outcomes-oriented way. In Sweden, they do something very interesting. They have a high-level challenge for the country, which is to have a fossil-free welfare state. And it then lands on the very particular, on the everyday and so, school meals—you know, lunch, which we all remember at, at school was our favorite time of the day—is meant to be healthy, tasty, so not just IKEA meatballs, uh, and sustainable. And having that real target and a goal-oriented lunch for school children means that the whole supply chain of school production—sorry, food production—has um, a target. So, it, so the so the procurement process, the public-private relationship in that procuring of lunch and the again, entire uh, supply chain has to deliver on a very difficult, but you know ambitious goal, which means that the companies have to transform, have to change what they're doing, have to innovate in order to meet that goal. Now, if government then tells companies how to do that, you can stifle innovation because you don't want to micromanage, right? So you want a top down kind of direction, but a bottom up process that leaves open the how. That's how we got to the moon. It was very clear what the goal was, getting to the moon and back in a short amount of time. A thousand different homework problems had to be solved along the way. And solving those homework problems is is what got us camera phones, baby formula, foil blankets, uh, scratch-resistant lenses, the whole software industry as we know it today was in some ways an outcome of the difficult problems along the way. So by having a very clear and targeted goal for something as simple as school lunch, we can foster lots of innovation along the way. And here is is a really important point, I think, for governments that sometimes confuse things when they focus on the economy. Um, NASA didn't focus on, oh, we need these spillovers. We need, you know, the internet. We need software. We need camera phones. They had <laughs> problems they were solving. So, what governments should do, I think, <laughs> this is my view, is to be really ambitious on what the overall mission is. Be, you know try to then use every instrument that government has for procurement, grants, loans, bailout programs during COVID to foster that bottom-up experimentation to solve those hundreds of homework problems around the digital divide, climate-neutral cities, stronger health systems. And the economics of it then is an outcome. The jobs, the productivity, the technological spillovers are an outcome. Whereas if we just obsess about economic growth and productivity and jobs, surprise, surprise, we don't get it because there's no actual problem that is stimulating the innovation and the investment, which of course then drives productivity.
0: The WHO Council on the Economics of Health for All, which you chair, released a statement last month on green financing. Uh, It calls for things like the creation of a public ratings agency and for carbon intensive consumption to be taxed at very high rates. Could you expand on some of those recommendations and, and tell us what response they've received?
1: Uh, well, first of all, the the who council, economics of health for all, which I chair, is just a pleasure to chair. First of all, because it's only women, and you know <laughs> that wasn't on purpose. I had to choose the best economists around the world, and they happen to all be women. Uh, from Vera Songwe in Africa, who she chairs the UN Economics Commission for Africa, to Jayati Ghosh, a, a wonderful development economist from India, Stephanie Kelton, Kate Rayworth is well known for her donut economics, um, and other. At women also from Latin America, uh, Asia, and so on. Our goal is to reverse the usual logic. So, the usual logic, at best, you know, at worst, it's let's do nothing because it costs too much. At best, it's invest in health. And guess what? It's also good for the economy, which is true. The cost of inaction is greater than the cost of action around health systems, around climate. But that's not enough. We said, how about if we actually said invest in health for all? That's the mission. So, In the case of the vaccine, it's not just to have a vaccine, it's to vaccinate the world. And then design the economy to deliver on that, right? Design the intellectual property rights, design the budgeting, the procurement that we were just talking about, the public-private partnerships to deliver on the goals around health for all. So again, a goal-oriented council, which then thinks about the economic tools, instruments, but also reasoning, the new economic thinking needed to deliver on that that's the goal and we have four work streams one on value how to rethink value creation around health for all one on innovation how do we actually collaborate to foster collective intelligence and not rent seeking by large pharmaceutical companies and others um finance you know the structure of finance isn't neutral the structure matters so patient long-term finance is what we need um and capacity issues we were just talking about the need for public sector capacity so That the entire world can actually produce the diagnostics, the treatments, the vaccines, instead of the global south relying on the global north, um, you know, philanthropy, which is fine sometimes, but we need productive capacity in every part of the world. Hence, again, the need to really make sure we also don't create too much rent seeking along the way by the global north. Anyway, and so the, what we tried to do with the document you mentioned was also to make that link between our health problems and the climate. So we know, for example, that pandemics are coming our way as the permafrost melts, and viruses that we are not uh, um, you know, used to as, as a human species will create potentially havoc. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that connection is there, also COVID-19. Some scientists argue was also connected to how we are, if you want, abusing biodiversity, the environment, and um, and the animal kingdom as well. As we ruin the forests and the Amazon, again, we are going to be closer and closer to different species that we're not used to uh, because we are invading that space, and that itself can uh, produce viruses. So, how do we become more prepared for a pandemic? It's also by making that link between the climate crisis and the health crisis. And that's one of the main things that we talked about at COP27, also in a um, panel that I uh, organized with the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley, First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, uh, the head of the WTO, and Gazio wila and the Minister of Planning uh, in Egypt. And in, in in that session also, we had uh, Mia Motley talking about what is happening in the global south, and she calls it the um, double jeopardy, in other words, the, uh, I don't really like, by the way, the the term global south, but I'm not Mm. sure what else we can, (laughs) let's just call it, developing countries, um, are facing the consequences of climate change that has been absolutely mainly caused by countries in the west that developed with very unsustainable practices. Um, And now developing countries are bearing the consequence of it. That's the first part of the jeopardy. The second part is they don't have the finance uh, to fight that also, not only, but also because the kind of loans that have been provided by the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank to developing countries has actually often been conditional on those countries reducing their deficits and their debts, almost in a voodoo kind of way, as though there's like a voodoo number that you have to reach and everything will be fine. And that ended up reducing their fiscal capacity. And the point shouldn't be just, you know, oh let people spend as much as they want, kind of helicopter money. We need the strategic, you know, issues that I talked about before. But surely they need the fiscal space. And so in the document that you mentioned, again, we looked at how we need an expansion of fiscal space and strategic tools in order for uh, developing countries to actually be able to um, battle both climate adaptation and mitigation. And the only real big achievement that happened at COP27 was around the loss and damage uh, uh, issue, but we didn't actually see a real commitment globally to allow that kind of fiscal space in a more uh, ambitious and continual way to be created in order to have systemic and scaled up, um, proactive, not reactive, uh, government programs to, you know, tackle what Greta Thornburg says is, uh, you know, stop blah blah blahing and and let's see action today.
0: Yes, I wondered to sort of try and get a bit more of a handle on that concept of creating fiscal space. Are there uh, small scale examples or situations which you regard as the seeds of the way forward on that issue?
1: Well. <laughs> You'd think there would be. Unfortunately, you know, what I'm seeing now, and I see it at the city level, I'm I'm increasingly talking to mayors around the world because I've just realized how starved cities are and city mayors are of the funds, often due to a, a kind of dysfunctional relationship with the federal and national level where again, they're given money during the crisis of COVID, for example, because we in London, for example, we had to get all the homeless people off the streets, which we did. So obviously, we're able to do that. Why did we not do that pre COVID or post COVID? Right? Mm. So now, because money and finance was released uh, for the emergency, now the idea is, oh, we need to tighten our belts again to kind of pay back, right? That money that was uh, um, that increased our our deficits and our debt to GDP, which doesn't make sense. We know that doesn't make sense. In Italy, where I'm from, after the financial crisis, Italy and all the southern European countries were asked to cut their deficits in order to have access to the European recovery, more broadly, the the recovery programs that the so-called Troika um, released. And that ended up, ironically, causing them to reduce their deficits. So Spain, I remember, reduced their publicly funded research and development spending by 40% to reduce their deficits. But it actually increased their debt to GDP. Right. So why is that? Because if you don't have bold, strategic public investment, accompanied by, of course, private investment, and often private investment can be crowded in through public investment, um, then the denominator doesn't grow. The denominator being GDP, And the key driver of GDP is productivity, for example, right? So if you're not investing in training and education and research and development, but also making our social fabric stronger so that you know it costs less to educate someone than to imprison them, you'd think that we would be really focusing on um, increasing and nurturing people's ability to actually access the opportunities that the twenty first century offers us. If we don't do that, GDP doesn't grow in the long run. So you can be cutting the the numerator, the deficit, but the debt to GDP figure actually increases because of what's happening, you know, again, in that denominator. And that can, in theory, just for mathematics, go to infinity. If zeros in the denominator, the ratio, no matter how low the numerator is, can actually go theoretically to infinity. And so you'd think we would have learned the lesson that that doesn't make sense. Austerity didn't work. And yet we're seeing that. In the UK, we're about to embark in another decade of austerity, which just created misery uh, in the UK. Uh, it doesn't mean again that we should have helicopter money in the so-called money tree. That's not the that's that shouldn't be the comparison. Um and that's really the subject also of the Penrose lectures, is I think we need to reimagine from the progressive side. I consider myself a progressive, you know, I'm not a conservative, I don't believe in austerity, but the progressive. Side cannot just be about redistribution it can't just be also what we've seen in some Latin American countries in the past at least where a progressive government will you know just have a very strong narrative about reducing inequality, making sure that poor people have access to what they didn't have access to before, which is very important. but then there's nothing to redistribute if we actually don't have a different way to create wealth in the first place. And so this idea of stakeholder value, which, you know, the business community talks about in places like Davos, I think we need to walk that talk, which is how do we create value differently so we don't have to pick up the mess afterwards? And that requires a bold industrial strategy, a bold innovation policy, but also a new type of contract between capital and labor, between public and private. I just wrote an article this week in the Financial Times um, about the need for more conditionality. We shouldn't just have governments giving out money to sectors, whether it's the life sciences sector, which, whether it's even renewable energy sector, which is you know, a great sector we should be investing in. We need to make sure that the conditions at the center of that public-private partnership truly gets us eventually inclusive and sustainable growth. So the contracts matter. Um that's so the reason why industrial strategy often doesn't work is if it's just seen as like a list of top sectors that government ends up subsidizing and providing guarantees without a real um, catalytical uh, uh, framing to make sure that those sectors then invest, that they use, uh, you know, greener supply chains, that they treat their workers better, that they increase the quality of working conditions that they stop doing something, which I've been very aware of over the years. Or by that I mean writing about, uh, which is stock buybacks. You know, we've had over six trillion being used by the large multinationals just to buy back their own shares to boost stock prices, stock options, and ultimately executive pay. That represents a failure of reinvestment of profits into the system, and we have global profits at a record high. We don't have investment at a record high. So those profits are often being financialized and share buybacks are just an example. You could have conditionality in public programs that the profits that are then produced from a collectively you know, created uh, wealth machine don't get uh, financialized, that they are reinvested and they help steer our economy in a greener, more inclusive direction. So you know, that's where we need to be reimagining. And there are examples of that um, in Germany. For example, their public bank, the KFW, recently provided a large loan to their steel sector, which globally is asking for money because steel is having problems. But that loan was conditional on the steel sector reducing its material content, which they did to repurpose, reuse, recycle technology, again, through their whole supply chain. So Germany today uh, has the greenest uh, steel sector in the world alongside Sweden, Not because they went to Davos and had to talk about purpose and stakeholder value, but because they had to do it to get one euro out of the government. And how they did it was up to them. Again, government didn't you know, micromanage that process. But that clear direction that this public loan taxpayer funded is conditional on you changing what you're doing so you have a greener industry. That should be the normal way that public and private work together. And of course, the steel industry then became more innovative and it's good for them, right, that they are on the frontier of green steel today because the world wants that and, you know, they're ahead of the game.
0: Professor Mariana Mazzucato, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us on RN. Thank you very much. And never afraid of a big challenge, Mariana's next book, co-written with Rosie Collington, is called The Big Con, How the Consulting Industry Weakens Our Businesses, Infantilizes Our Governments, and Warps Our Economies. And from what Mariana was saying, sounds like it's particularly pertinent to Australia as well, Mariana. Is that right?
1: It is. And I'm looking forward to the big debates that are going to come out of that book.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I hope the book sales compensate for the lack of consultancies which are bound to follow from it. Thank you again for speaking with us.
1: Uh, Thank you very much. Think bigger
0: about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.